Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting June 17, 2016, we launch our coverage of the new WPJ summer issue on renegade cities and how they cope when state and national governments fail them. Managing editor Jaffa Frederick surveys answers from around the world to the issue's big question. How can governments collaborate with the private sector to provide affordable housing? We'll also point out other top features in the new summer issue. You're listening to World Policy on Air. Now this. While home sales in first and second tier cities are recovering nicely, third and fourth tier cities are telling a different story, however. Small cities have high housing stocks due to overbuilding and insufficient demand. The huge inventory in lower-tiered cities is of great importance, as property investment there accounts for 70% of the nationwide total. The images on that Chinese TV report were disheartening for any who see housing there as meant for habitation rather than a profit-making motor for China's flagging economy. Despite national policies to encourage more affordable housing, the interests of developers and lower-level bureaucrats they deal with has led to building more and more units with high price tags. More recent government regulations cut down payments and mortgage rates, mostly for the well-off, even for second-home buyers. But that has yet to zero out all the housing overstock, much less serve the needs of rural migrants, the pre-existing urban poor, and many city dwellers moved off their properties to erect spanking new ghost towns, ghost neighborhoods, ghost building complexes. How can governments collaborate with the private sector to provide affordable housing is the headline on the big question feature in the New World Policy Journal Summer 2016 issue. To survey some answers from around the world, I spoke recently with WPJ Managing Editor Jaffa Frederick. Jaffa, welcome back to World Policy on Air. Thank you for having me. Let's stay with China and the report headline, Bringing Down the House. Who wrote it? So Victor Clemens wrote this piece. He is a researcher with the Chinese Human Rights Defenders, and they're a network that promote grassroots activism and democracy in China. Beijing acknowledges a need for more affordable housing, but Clemens says that's undermined by corrupt partnerships between private developers and local officials. Clearly, developers want to make big sales. What motivates the bureaucrats to go along? As you mentioned, the central authorities, and this was in about 2010, made low-cost housing a priority. And that meant that low-cost housing construction became a part of the performance evaluation for all local officials. So in order for local officials to begin to meet these housing targets, they found developers to be a convenient partner. And many of these developers are the ones who will displace or evict residents in order to construct quickly and supposedly cheaper buildings. Talk more about the way new construction creates new homeless who can rarely Well, to make way for these high-rise, supposedly low-cost apartments, many city dwellers are forcibly evicted from their homes, and they're not provided with adequate compensation. They're essentially rendered homeless, and if they go and seek remuneration, many of those officials refuse to give them any. Regulations from 2011 were ostensibly meant to decrease forced eviction and demolition. What happened? Well, these regulations allowed local officials to decide how land is used under the pretext of 
providing for the quote public good. So they were essentially a green light for officials to undertake whatever development plans they saw fit, displacing whomever from wherever. An arm of the United Nations had something to say about that. Yeah, the UN Committee on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights about four years later in 2014 expressed regret, actually I should say about three years later in 2014 expressed regret, arguing that this public good clause, instead of reducing evictions and demolitions, had essentially legalized it under Chinese law. There's been a civil society response to out-of-control evictions and demolitions. Tell us about that and specifically the plight of an activist named Jia Lingmin. With the rise in evictions and demolitions, an entire housing rights advocacy group has emerged within China. Uh, Jia Lingmin herself is a victim of a home demolition in Zhengzhou and uh, Henin province, and she became a symbol of this group. And so while seeking justice for her own loss, she began training other evictees how to fight for their rights. She is now serving a four-year prison sentence for, quote, picking quarrels and provoking troubles, which is a fairly standard charge the Chinese government uses against activists who seek some sort of accountability when rights are violated. The Communist Party has set out a vision of, quote, the comfortable society, unquote, by 2020. What does that entail and what does Clemens think about it and what really needs to be done? The 2020 vision entails protecting the basic housing rights of all people, which Clement says is a great slogan, but far from the reality. Success, he argues, can't just be measured in the number of residences created. The government needs to take into account how best to protect the current citizens and their homes in the process of development, and also how to curtail this corruption that's happening between uh, private and public sector in development. So some safeguards could include um, providing uh, the opportunity to seek justice when housing rights are violated and also to do so without fear of retaliation from local or central authorities. Another response to the big question came from Great Britain. Who was our correspondent there? So Nick Mathiasen was our correspondent. He's a British journalist with the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, and he actually was recently shortlisted for the Orwell Prize for his series on affordable housing issues in the UK. Uh, here we get a picture of local and national government collaboration with the private sector to make housing unaffordable. Talk first about the trends in government spending on social housing and housing subsidies. Sure. Well, since 2011, the British government spending on social housing has fallen by over 60%, and yet rents for many of these newly built affordable homes have actually risen. Um, at the same time, government officials have reduced obligations on developers to create more affordable homes and benefits to subsidize escalating private grants, be they for the unemployed, the disabled, or the low income, have been cut. So we're seeing more tenant evictions than ever before and a rise in homelessness in the UK. Aid for first-time home buyers has backfired. Yeah. The government realized that rising housing prices were locking out millions of young people from buying, so they started offering these rebates. But these rebates have not only failed to reduce underlying prices, they've bumped up the cost for everyone else as the government tries to basically make back the money on these rebates. Talk more about the eased regulations on developers. Despite their complaint, the planning system is overly restrictive. Well, that's kind of the irony in the situation. The developers are complaining about tough regulations, but they're actually sitting on a record number of homes that have full planning consents and could be built at any point in time. And instead, they're waiting for the price of land to increase before they begin development to try to make a, a bigger profit. At the high end, it seems that rising real estate values have turned prime London property into a kind of piggy bank for some. 
Yeah, much like New York here, uh, foreign investment, which includes a large number of these oligarchs and overseas political figures, are buying up expensive London property and using it as this kind of piggy bank or safety deposit box for their wealth. Beyond an increase in national government spending specifically on affordable housing, uh, the writer urges a new relationship between local authorities and the public sector. Say more about that. Yeah, so Mathiasen argues that local and public authorities, particularly ones that own land that's fit for housing construction, should essentially become equity partners with the private sector on these new housing schemes. So in this manner, local authorities can invest profits back into the development of affordable homes under their new supervision. But he suggests new time limits for construction. Why that? Well, as we've already discussed, a lot of developers are just sitting on land ready for construction, and they're they prefer to retain it rather than develop it in the hope that the price of the land increases. But if a time limit's placed on construction and they don't build within that frame, they should lose planning consent. This would encourage swifter construction, and then ultimately the developments that come out of it would be at more affordable prices. He also envisions new ways for local councils to help finance such housing. Yeah, currently local councils face very serious restrictions on raising capital, but if these local councils were allowed to raise bonds to finance housing, they could ultimately use the rents to pay back investors for those bonds. Matheson looks as well at changes in refurbishing old social housing estates. Yeah, so the current trend has been to transfer the development rights from these old social housing estates to private companies, who then displace the tenants and offer an increasing number of units for private sale. It's kind of a socioeconomic cleansing of a particular area. Um, so if this policy were reformed, it would mean that when a social estate is redeveloped, there isn't a loss of affordable homes and not everything is immediately privatized. Matheson also looks at the way banks and their mortgage policies could ease the problem of affordable housing that they've helped to create. What's his conclusion? So in the UK, like in many Western economies, the proportion of the bank's overall loan book earmarked for mortgage lending has risen exponentially. And this has basically created a wall of money that contributes to the steep prices in housing. So banks need to find alternative vehicles beyond property to achieve high returns. And I think Matthiasen kind of phrases it best at the end where he says this will reduce the amount of money chasing a limited supply of bricks and mortar. <laughs> A third response on the problem of affordable urban housing came from an eminent contributor in Nigeria. Tell us about him. Yeah, so Bob Etimiku is a communications manager with the African Network for Environment and Economic Justice, which is one of the leading uh, NGOs on the continent. He starts with the bad news about the good news about oil in Nigeria. Yeah, so after Nigeria gained independence in 1960, it began to earn quite a hefty income from crude oil sales, but the allure of these petrodollars also created a rural to urban migration, which essentially caused all the agrarian economies within the country to collapse, and it created a stretch of unplanned cities as populations increased faster than the housing stock could. The government did not ignore the problem, at least on paper. Yeah, on paper, the government created some terrific-sounding development policies and tried to execute them with the constructions of homes managed by banks. But without reliable population data and with a terrible system of political patronage determining who got what homes, uh, housing units remained scarce in the places that they were needed most. After the initial response proved a failure, there was a new two-part plan with problems of its own, including destruction of homes that had been built on government land. Then what happened? 
Yeah. So after these homes had been torn down and the people who lived in them essentially thrown into the streets, the former minister of then the federal capital territory, Nasir al-Rufai, embarked on part one of this plan, which was digitizing the land registry of Abuja. And this involved allocating land to individuals who were seeking to build homes. But once again, you have the system of patronage rearing its ugly head. And so the people who got first preference on land building were the politicians, the celebrities, the creme de la creme of Abuja society. Part of the plan involved tracts of land on which nobody was living because they'd been set aside for agriculture, public parks, and utilities, normally considered the pretty valuable purposes. What was the goal and how did it work out? Under this new plan, the government allocated these tracts of land to private developers under the condition that these new housing units would be affordable to even the poorest of Nigerians. But these companies needed to make a profit. They were private, after all, and housing material costs are quite high. So the housing units ended up being far too expensive for most Nigerians. And as a result, you have many Nigerians living kind of on the outskirts of Abuja rather than in the city centers. Part two of the policy involved a land swap that our contributor thinks actually could help resolve the country's housing crisis. Tell us about that. Yeah, so under this new scheme, the uh, government will grant land to developers to provide homes with good electricity, parks, other amenities for a grand total of uh, $900 million. Still, there continues a serious problem with government enforcement. What does our report say about that and how to fix it? Yeah, so the SAG is that the government is not enforcing any of the conditions of these deals. Um, for the land swap to succeed, for this development to happen, the government needs to be firm, it needs to be transparent, it needs to be responsive to the needs of the public. And so ideally, Nigeria would have an, an open government that has a reliable data set of population stats, and it could work with developers to create affordable rent regimes that, again, even the poorest Nigerians should be able to access. Finally comes an answer to the big question from Peru. Who's our expert there? Denise Morales is our expert. She's an economist, and she's the decentralized investment director at the Private Investment Promotion Agency in Peru. More than any other answer we've discussed, this one suggests an effective mix of direct housing subsidies and public-private sector partnerships. Who gets the subsidies? So this is where the consumers get them directly. The government essentially provides cash and mortgage credits to low- and middle-income families to cover the gap between what they're able to pay and what the actual cost of a home is on the formal housing market. What's been the impact of the subsidies on people and on the real estate market? So the affordable housing market in Peru has grown significantly. Uh, the government actually has two subsidized programs now, Mi Vivienda, which is geared towards middle income, and Techo Propio, which is targeted at those with lower income, and that's been critical in allowing people to begin to repopulate the city centers. Um, and it's also had a good effect on the real estate and construction sectors. They're booming. Uh, between 1998 and 2012, it increased by over fourfold, and the mortgage credit market has also grown with the increase in development and construction. Still, a report says there are issues of land scarcity and inadequate social services. Yeah, much like our Nigeria example, we've had several waves of this rural to urban migration over the last 50 or 60 years. And so migrants are establishing unplanned settlements that, of course, lack adequate housing, health services, sanitation. And the failure of these housing policies on a, a more federal or state level to accommodate these waves of migrants is leading to this growth in social inequality between the haves who live in the city center and the have-nots who have to live on the outskirts. 
Talk about the land bank program launched in 2012, goals and uh, glitches. So the land bank program was designed to satisfy the demand for land for affordable housing and private initiatives. It created a land bank of nearly 360 square miles with access to all of the city's major infrastructure. The goal was to auction it off at low prices to private developers and builders who would construct quickly and again create these affordable homes. But the program lacked oversight, and so the program was not supplemented with any sort of land use regulations or measures to control land speculation. Some criticized the policies in Peru for not addressing uh, the goal of greater social integration. What does the report suggest uh, will be needed to deal with that? While governments have promoted these public-private partnerships, they've played more of a facilitating role, giving the private sector too much power. And the public and private sector have different goals. Obviously, the private sector is there to make money, but the public sector, the government, is focused on greater social integration. So if it wants to push that agenda, it needs to take a much more active role in leading urban development reform. Before we go, tell us a bit more about the new summer issue on what you call renegade cities and how they cope when state and national governments fail them. Give us an example or two. Sure. So one of our lead stories uh, deals with Chennai, a southern city in India that has a major water problem. Kavitha Rajagopalan investigates the informal water economy, finding that the government's failure there to dependably distribute clean water has basically made a black market of water a necessity. But in such a poorly regulated environment, uh, clean water is often dirty and actually putting millions at risk. So Kavitha puts forward a number of possible plans to kind of regulate the informal water market. Another one of our stories comes to us from Kumasi, Ghana, where Ravashi Kal explores the use of something called social capital credits, which is a system in which people perform socially beneficial activities to earn credits that can then be redeemed for a wide variety of goods and services. And the concept's simple, but Call argues that social capital credits actually bring about a redefinition of wealth that takes into account the power of the community. That's great. Yaffa, thank you. Thank you. WPJ Managing Editor Yaffa Frederick surveyed answers from around the world to the big question in the new summer issue, how can governments collaborate with the private sector to provide affordable housing? Also featured in the new WPJ summer issue, Renegade Cities, you'll find articles about Northern England's attempt at regional integration, honor killings in Pakistan, and a different sort of tragedy in Kashmir. And listen next week when our podcast will focus on that black market for water in the Indian city of Chennai. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Yaffa Frederick, Podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.